Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So this is um, Professor Bogardis. He is an associate professor of philosophy at Pepperdine University. He was born in Long Beach, California, and earned his BS in biology at UC San Diego, his MA in philosophy at Biola University, and his PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. He works mainly in metaphysics and epistemology, and is most interested in the mind-body problem and the rationality of religious belief. Please join me in welcoming Professor Pogardis. Okay, thanks very much, Maddie. Can you all hear me okay if I don't use the microphone? Okay. All right, um, well, if you're interested in having these slides, you can get them at this URL. Uh, all right, so as Maddie said, the, um, the official title on the posters and whatnot is um, Does Birthplace Determine Religion? And there I've got a little guy who looks like he's on the road to becoming Christian. Um, so uh, I was going to change the title a little bit because I think depending on what we mean by determine, uh, the answer is either pretty clearly yes or pretty clearly no. If we just mean does your birthplace influence what religion you are, I think that's pretty clearly yes. If we mean does your birthplace guarantee what religion you end up being, um, then I guess the answer is pretty clearly no. Um, people change their religious affiliations during the course of their lifetime all the time. Um, but uh, as I said, I think one way of understanding the question, the answer is pretty clearly yes, and that way of understanding the question is, um, does birthplace influence what religion you end up being? And there I said, yeah, the answer is pretty clearly yes. And then the question I'm interested in asking is, does that fact, should that fact cause you to be skeptical of your religious beliefs? The fact that um, your religious beliefs are to a large degree influenced by where you were born, who your parents were, what school you happen to go to, um, yeah. So the way I put it is, um, here we've got some, some little guys on their way to being a different kind of religion, some sort of Buddhist. So um, the way I put the question is something more like this, um, or I call it the elsewhere, else when objection to religious belief. And maybe you've heard this kind of objection before, especially if you happen to have been, I don't know, I guess I don't know what religious affiliation you are, but if you're Catholic, and if you happen to be in, to have been born to a Catholic family. Maybe you've heard this sort of objection before. People point out that if you had been born elsewhere and elsewhen at a different time, um, then you surely would have had different religious views. And so these skeptics say, shouldn't that um, cause you to be uh, skeptical or suspicious of your religious beliefs? So what we'll do today is I'll show you a bunch of statements of this kind of argument all through the history of philosophy. This is a really old argument in philosophy. So I'll show you a bunch of statements of the argument, and then we'll look at some different ways of understanding the argument. Um, yeah, and we'll end with what I think is the best way to understand the argument. Um, but I guess the too long didn't read version of this presentation is no version of this argument um, ends up working. And in fact, it looks like it's, it's liable to turn on the skeptic who wields it. Um, and that's pretty common with skeptical arguments. Uh, they often demand more skepticism 
from the person who's trying to use this kind of objection, then that person would like to admit. Um, yeah, so that's what we'll talk about today. And uh, I guess I'll just give you a little bit of history. This is, this is kind of personal for me um, for a number of reasons. This was one of the first questions that got me interested in philosophy. I was a biology major as an undergrad, happily on my way to going to medical school or working in a lab for the rest of my life. That was the plan. Um, and I was studying, um, I took some cognitive science classes because I thought that was interesting. And in my cognitive science class, we read, really had nothing to do with philosophy of religion except that the person who wrote this book, Paul Churchland, and we'll look at the argument in a little while, gave this kind of objection to religious belief. I remember like, I, I still remember what room I was in and what position on the page it was because it like jumped out at me and I thought, I don't know what this is, but this is the kind of thing that is really interesting to me. This is what I want to do um, maybe with the rest of my life. Um, and yeah, when I first read the objection, I didn't really have any good response, and it sort of worried me. Um, yeah, and I guess it continued to worry me over the years, especially as I changed my own views, largely as a result of friends I happened to meet. So I was raised Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutheran, if that means anything to you all. Um, that's a very conservative kind of Lutheran. Um, but then in grad school, I met some really intelligent Catholic grad students. Um, and when we started talking about our religious views, I felt like, you know, sorry I have to do this to you, but here's why you're wrong. And um, <laughs> they did the same thing to me. And that was another time in, my, in, the, in the history of my life when, like, the memory has become really impressed deeply within me because I was struck by how easily they answered all of my objections um, and how, you know, like, facile my objections were, even though I had gone to Lutheran schools for my whole life, and I had gotten the whole briefing. Um, I was really struck by how easily they answered all of my objections. So of course I thought, I'm going to go get better objections, I'm going to go do some research and um, bring better objections to them. Um, and then, you know, cut to, I became Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this objection's relevant because I could have gone to a different graduate program. And if I had gone to a different graduate program, I might not have met those students or faculty who also influenced me to become Catholic. I, one of the places I was thinking about going was the City University of New York, and I don't think I would have met any Catholics there. I, yeah, I guess I don't know for sure, but um, my life might have gone very differently, including my religious life, my spiritual life. Um, so that's one way this objection has been really salient in my own life. Yeah, so it was... It was a decision that was highly contingent. It easily could have gone otherwise which graduate school I went to. Um, I happened to pick Austin for reasons unrelated to my religious views, but they ended up, that decision ended up changing um, my religious views. So yeah, as we'll see, I think skeptics would pounce on that fact and say um, that should give you a cause for concern. Okay, so let's look at some statements of this argument. Here's one from Xenophanes of Colophon. So a long time ago, um, he was well known for his criticisms of Greek popular religion. He himself was religious. He was a kind of, I think, early monotheist. Um, he thought the polytheism of Greek popular religion was ridiculous, and so he gave objections to it. And this was one of his objections to Greek popular religion. So he said, if oxen and horses and lions had hands, 
and were able to draw with their hands and do the same things as men. Horses would draw the shapes of gods to look like horses and oxen to look like oxen, and each would make the gods' bodies have the same shape as they themselves had. Okay, and whoop, there I give you a little example, like a golden calf. Oh yeah, so I thought there, I thought there was more to that quotation, but that's it. Um, so the idea here seems to be that our ideas of what the gods are like, um, our ideas seem to depend to an embarrassing degree on factors that are on the wrong side of the question. We would like our views about what God or the gods are like to be um, determined by what they're really, what the gods are actually like. But it looks like um, our views about what God or the gods are like are influenced by facts about us, like what we happen to look like. So if we had been oxen or horses or lions, we would have had a very different view of um, who populates uh, Olympus. We had a really different view about what the gods are like. I was thinking about this today because we went to the Museum of Natural History, and I don't think the Egyptians got this memo um, <laughs> because they, they had a lot of um, animal cults, and they thought a lot of gods had the shape of animals, not human shapes. But I guess in the context in which Xenophanes was writing, this seemed like a good objection. Okay, so that's one statement of this argument. Like if you had, and he also points out that um, he says people in Ethiopia have different um, conceptions of the gods than people in Thrace do. What's up? All right. Um, is this image bothering you? <laughs> is that bad? Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, so he says people in Ethiopia have different conceptions of the gods than people in Thrace. He said in Thrace the gods have blue, blue eyes and red hair. I guess that's what Thracians look like back then. Okay, so yeah, his thought was if you had been born in Ethiopia, you would have had a very different view about religion than if you had been born in Thrace. And if you'd been a horse, your views about the gods would have been really different still. Okay, so that's one statement of the argument. Um, here's one from Descartes from Discourse on the Method. He says, um, and in fact, he's explaining why he underwent the meditations. If you've taken any philosophy class, probably you've read some of his meditations. Um, you remember in the meditations, the project was to demolish the structure of beliefs that he had built up in his life until that point, and he wanted to start from scratch. Um, he wanted to like ignore the history of philosophy and just do it from scratch. Um, and in the Discourse on the Method, he explains why, and this kind of elsewhere, else when argument was one of the major motivations. So he says, I had considered how the same man with the same capacity for reason becomes different as a result of being brought up among Frenchmen or Germans than he would be if he'd been brought up among Chinese or cannibals. Oh, wait, my bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I forgot about that. So that's like a really famous um, portrait of Descartes. And then someone recently asked artificial intelligence to <laughs> complete the portrait. <laughs> and that's what artificial intelligence created, which I thought was kind of funny. OK, um, so Descartes continues. And I think that's AI too, I guess, but not as weird. OK, he says, I felt that in all these ways, we are much more greatly influenced by custom and example than by any certain knowledge. So it looks like our views, our opinions on various kinds of questions are influenced by custom and example rather than certain knowledge, rather than by the truth. Okay, and he says, faced with this divergence of opinion, faced with this disagreement, 
and how easily his own opinions could have been different had he been raised elsewhere, among the French or the Germans or the Chinese. He says, I could not accept the testimony of the majority, for I thought it worthless as a proof of anything. And then he undergoes his meditations. Okay, so there's another statement of it. Here's one from John Stuart Mill. Um, he says, and the world to each individual means the part of it with which he comes in contact. His party, his sect, his church, his class of society. It never troubles him that mere accident has decided which of these numerous worlds is the object of his reliance and that the same causes which make him a churchman in London would have made him a Buddhist or a Confucian in Peking or Beijing. Okay, so there too, uh, looks like John Stuart Mill is sensitive to this elsewhere, elsewhere concern, and that's, he's noticing it and he's worried about it. And here we get a statement that it's just an accident, it's merely an accident, um, how you turn out. So the same sorts of causes that might make you a churchman in London, those very same kinds of influences and causes might make you a Buddhist or Confucian if you'd been born and raised in China. Okay, so um, this is the same kind of thought that we saw in Xenophanes and Descartes, and it's supposed to produce in you a kind of intellectual vertigo, like you're supposed to feel a little dizzy when you think about your own life um, and how easily your own religious beliefs might have changed depending on who your parents were or how you've been raised or which school you happen to go to. Um, I guess you can reflect on that in your own life now. How would you have been if you hadn't gone to Catholic University of America? Would your religious views have been different? I don't know. Think about it. Um, okay, just another quick story. I've shared this story before, but another reason this argument worried me in my own life was um, my mom's side of the family is Cuban, and there was some Catholicism on that side of the family. And my dad's side of the family is Lutheran. Um, but my mom was raised Lutheran, and in fact, that's how my parents met, was at some Lutheran Bible study. Um, but one time, when I was much older, when I was like in my mid-20s, I asked my mom's parents why they raised her Lutheran rather than Catholic. And what they said was, well, when we like moved to Chicago, when we moved to the United States, um, the Catholic Church was the closest one to our house. That's what they said. <laughs> And so that was really disturbing to me because I was very happy as a Lutheran. I was really like a devout Lutheran. But then I realized at that moment, um, I exist because of a real estate decision. Had they moved somewhere else in the city um, and ended up being Catholic, like my parents never would have met. Uh, and if they had, like I may well not have been brought up Lutheran. I may have been brought up Catholic or something else. Okay, so it's that sort of contingency. Um, those are some examples from, from my own life, where I went to grad school where my grandparents happened to move um, that seemed to resonate with what we see in Xenophanes and Descartes and John Stuart Mill. It looks like there's a whole lot of accidentality involved in um, the formation of our religious beliefs. Okay, just a couple more quotes, and these are more contemporary. This is from John Hick, who passed away not too long ago. He was a very influential philosopher of religion um, in the last century. And um, yeah, he actually started out with his life just sort of vaguely non-religious. And then in college, when he was about your age, he became uh, an evangelical Christian as a result of getting, um, becoming influenced by InterVarsity. Is that still a group on college campuses? Okay. 
So yeah, it was InterVarsity um, in the UK that convinced him to become an evangelical. Um, and after he got his PhD, um, shortly thereafter, he lost his Christian faith. And he gives two reasons why. And this was one of the reasons. We're not going to talk about the other reason today. Um, but this was one of the reasons that convinced him to stop being a Christian. He says, so his first job, by the way, I should tell you, was at the University of Birmingham, which is a really pluralistic sort of um, community, lots of different religions re um, represented. And in some capacity, I don't remember what, maybe with his church, he visited um, adherents of other religions. And this is one of the things that that made him realize. He said, religious allegiance depends in the great majority of cases on the accident of birth. Someone born into a devout Muslim family in Pakistan is very likely to be a Muslim. Someone born into a devout Hindu family in India to be a Hindu. Someone born into a devout Christian family in Spain or Mexico to be a Catholic Christian and so on. Um, so there's that kind of counterfactual premise. There's that elsewhere, else when premise again. If you had been born into a devout Muslim family, you probably would have been Muslim. If you'd been born in Spain or medieval France or something, you probably would have been a Catholic. If you'd been born in India, you probably would have been a Hindu. So there's his premise. There's that counterfactual premise again. And here's his conclusion. It says, the conclusion I've drawn is that a hermeneutic of suspicion is appropriate in relation to beliefs that have been instilled into one by the surrounding religious culture. Okay, so there too we get an appeal to how people are forming their religious beliefs that's making him suspicious. They're being instilled into you by the surrounding religious culture. Um, and then here's his statement of the conclusion. He says that we should adopt a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's not entirely clear what that means, but I'll tell you in his own life, that meant give up Christianity and become what he called a pluralist, which basically he said that he believed the intersection of all the great uh, world religions, which is not much. <laughs> um, he believed in the capital R real, the capital U ultimate. He wouldn't even call it God. It was a very minimal kind of doctrine. Okay, so that's um, one argument that influenced John Hick. Uh, and then I think I have two more statements. Here's one from Philip Kitcher. He says, most Christians have adopted their doctrines much as polytheists and ancestor worshipers have acquired theirs through early teaching and socialization. Had the Christians been born among the Aboriginal Australians, they would believe in just the same ways, on just the same bases, and with just the same convictions, doctrines about dream time instead of about the resurrection. Um, so I think I, I wrote a paper about this many years ago, but I just reminded myself what dream time was. And that's like a sort of cosmogony or origin myth that the Aborigines had. Um, it's like set in a period many, many years ago that tells how everything got here. Okay, so there we get the counterfactual again. If Christians had been born among the Aboriginal Australians, Christians would, people who are now actually Christians would have very different beliefs. They wouldn't be Christian. They'd have doctrines about dream time. Okay, um, and then <coughs> here's the la oh yeah, that's a laser pointer I'm pushing. <laughs> Hope I, if I didn't blind you. Um, okay, he says the symmetry is complete. Given that they're all on a par, we should trust none of them. Okay, so I just want to dwell for a second. We're gonna look at this argument a little more in depth in a second. But um, his version of the argument focuses on symmetry. He thinks Christians and Aboriginal Australians and I guess you know Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Hindus, they all have 
Um, they believe in the same ways, on the same bases, with the same convictions, um, this different sorts of doctrines. But their bases are the same, their convictions are the same. Um, and so that's the symmetry. They have the same kind of evidence as each other, the same level of conviction as each other. And so we've got this symmetry. Um, so we should trust none of them, he says. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit like if you had a, like a little body of water and you weren't sure what temperature it was and somebody handed you a thermometer and you didn't know how reliable this thermometer was, you put it in there and it says the water is 80 degrees. And you take another thermometer out of the box and it says it's 70 degrees. You probably shouldn't just pick one of these and trust that one, right? Maybe you try to split the difference or something. But you shouldn't just stick with one of them because the evidence is symmetrical. You've got these two thermometers that you trust to the same degree. One of them says 80, one of them says 70. Why would you just stick with one? Especially, I mean, this would be super irrational. Well, this is the one I picked first. Or don't do that. <laughs> so he thinks it would be similarly irrational if you see that the Christian thermometer is telling you Christianity is true and the aboriginal thermometer is telling you doctrines about dream time are true. It would be irrational to just say, well, I was raised a Christian, so I'll stick with this one. Yeah, that's not a legitimate symmetry breaker, according to Philip Kitcher. Okay, last one from maybe somebody you've heard of. Richard Dawkins? Okay, heard that name before? All right, he's kind of famous. Um, he says, uh, speaking in the first person, he says, my move to atheism began at age nine when I realized, and now here's a quote, that Christianity was one of many religions and they contradicted each other. They couldn't all be right. So why believe the one which by sheer accident of birth I happened to be brought up? Okay, so there I think um, encapsulated in that red bit is this counterfactual. You realize if I had been born somewhere else, as I easily might have been, um, I would have had different religious beliefs. So why stick with the ones I happen to have been born with? Okay, so that's it. That's, um, those are all the statements that I've collected from the history of philosophy, uh, from Xenophanes up through Dawkins. We got the whole tour. <laughs> okay, so let's think about um, how to understand this argument and whether this is actually a good argument. Okay, so I'll start with um, like sort of simple su surface level readings of the argument and then we'll get a little more sophisticated. So here's one quick response that people often give to this argument. And um, you often, oh shoot, forget about that. But okay, I'll just tell you, I forgot about this map, but you know that the various world religions are not distributed uniformly. That's it, that's what this map tells you. Although. It's from the early 80s, <laughs> so we need to update it. But um, I think even if we did update, we'd see that the great world religions are not distributed uniformly. Although I guess, yeah, lots happened in the last 40 so years, and we've had a lot more globalization and migration, so maybe it is more uniform now. But this was the kind of concern that was motivating um, the people we just read. Okay, so as I was saying, one common response that people give to this argument is to say, look, this is just a genetic fallacy. The argument is something like this. If you'd been born and raised elsewhere, else when, you would have had different religious beliefs. Okay, and then the allegation is, the skeptic is trying to conclude on that basis that your religious beliefs are false. Okay, so maybe you've heard of the genetic fallacy that's trying to convince your opponent that um, his or her beliefs are false because of uh, how they arose, because of their origins, because of their genesis. 
So it's kind of what we're getting here. We're talking about um, something about the origin of your religious beliefs and how they were a result of an accident of birth and who your parents were. And then what we're concluding is, ah, your religious beliefs are false. So this is what, for example, William Lane Craig says about the argument. This is the interpretation he often gives of the argument. He says this is just uh, an example of a genetic fallacy. He says, yes, the counterfactual is very true. Premise one is very true. But to think that that somehow invalidates a person's Christian belief is a textbook example of a logical fallacy called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is trying to invalidate a position by showing how a person came to hold it. And that's obviously an invalid way of reasoning. This is all a quotation, by the way. This is not me talking. This is Craig talking. He says, a person might come to hold a belief for any number of reasons, some of them inadequate. But that doesn't show that the belief itself is false. So yeah, you could just randomly guess um, if you asked me. I don't know. I guess you. I guess. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you. I guess that's what the what picking lottery tickets is like. You're just randomly guessing what the winning lottery number is going to be. Um, but you could be right. If you just pointed out that if you saw my lottery ticket and you pointed out, well, you just guessed what the numbers what the winning numbers are going to be. That doesn't show that this lottery ticket is not going to win. Right? It doesn't show that those aren't the winning numbers. Sometimes you can be right just by chance. So that's why the genetic fallacy is a fallacy. Just from the fact that somebody formed their beliefs in a really bad way doesn't guarantee that the belief uh, or beliefs are false. Um, so that's William Lane Craig's response. Um, but I think that's a mistake to interpret the argument this way, as though the skeptic is trying to convince you that your religious beliefs are false. Um, and I think there's two reasons why we should interpret the argument this way. One is it's just really uncharitable. Uh, it makes the argument kind of ridiculous um, because obviously there are counterexamples. I just gave you one having to do with lottery tickets. Okay, so it's not a very, if we're in the business of like steel manning our opponent's positions or trying to respond to the best version of our opponent's arguments, this isn't it. Um, but also I think there's um, textual evidence that this is not what the skeptics were up to. If you think about those arguments we looked at uh, at the beginning of this presentation, Descartes says that um, we're influenced by custom and example and not by any certain knowledge. John Hick recommends a hermeneutic of suspicion. He doesn't say um, what, what, this elsewhere, what, the, what these elsewhere, elsewhere considerations convince me of is that my religious beliefs are false. He didn't say that. He just says we should be suspicious of them, should be agnostic. We should suspend belief. Um, Kitcher, Philip Kitcher said that we should trust none of them. He says the symmetry is complete. Given that they're all on a par, we should trust none of them. So again, he's not saying that um, obviously everybody's wrong. The Aborigines are wrong. The Christians are wrong. The Hindus are wrong. He's not saying that. He's just saying like we can't believe any of them. It wouldn't be rational to believe any one of them. Okay, and then Dawkins, remember, was wondering, he said when he was nine, he wondered, why should I believe Christianity? He didn't take these considerations to show that Christianity is false. He just took them to show that like, you couldn't reasonably believe that it's true. Okay, so I don't think we should interpret the argument as a genetic fallacy. So one um, slight improvement is to notice that really what we're attacking is knowledge, not truth. We're not trying to show that your religious beliefs are false. The skeptic is not trying to show that your religious beliefs are false. The skeptic, the skeptic is trying to show that um, you don't know whether or not they're true. Your religious beliefs don't count as knowledge. Yeah, you're basically just guessing. You're being irrational. 
Okay, so let's change the argument then. Let's improve it a little bit. And instead of saying that um, the conclusion of this elsewhere, else when argument is that uh, your religious beliefs are false, let's say the conclusion is that you don't know whether or not they're true. You definitely don't know that they're true. Okay, so I call this the bare counterfactual argument because we're just starting with a counterfactual and then moving to this skeptical conclusion. Um, I think this is an improvement. We're no longer like straw manning our opponents and being unfaithful to the text. Um, but this version of the argument, uh, I think, is a non-starter. Just from the fact that you easily might have had different religious beliefs, it doesn't follow that you don't really know that they're true. And in response to John Hicks' skeptical, skeptical argument, Alvin Plantinga gave a couple of counterexamples to the inference from this premise to the conclusion. So Plantinga tried to give examples of cases where um, if you'd been born and raised elsewhere, elsewhere, and you might have had different beliefs on a topic, but it doesn't follow that you don't know that those beliefs are true. He gave the example of, um, he said in his, he was born in Michigan. He gives the example of his belief that he was born in Michigan. I was born in Long Beach, California. Um, so I'll use that example. So that's a belief that I have. I was born in Long Beach, California. And I'm pr I, I think I know that. I'm pretty certain about that. That's like, that's like up there in terms of certainty. Um, of all the beliefs I have, that's one, of, that's one of the ones I'm most sure of. But notice that if I had been born and raised elsewhere, else when, I would have had different beliefs about where, when and where I was born. I wouldn't have believed that I was born in Long Beach. You know what? You tracking with me? Did you get that? Okay. If I had been born in Texas, I would have believed that I was born in Texas. Does it follow then, and it looks like we're using the same general form of this inference, does it follow that I really know I was born in Long Beach? I don't think that follows. So what Plating is pointing out is, it's true that you know, if your history had been different in some ways, your beliefs would have been different in, um, in some ways as well. But that doesn't mean that your current beliefs, can you see what I'm doing with my hands here? <laughs> Here's your actual history, here are your actual beliefs. We're considering a kind of counterfactual history where I was born in Texas rather than being born in Long Beach. It's true that my history could have changed in various ways and my beliefs would have changed, but as long as they would have changed in corresponding ways, as long as they still would have been tracking the truth, then I, I shouldn't really be worried about that. Um, that. That doesn't really need to worry me. So it's true that, yeah, my history might have been different in various ways and produced different kinds of beliefs, but they might have um, produced good beliefs, beliefs that were tracking the truth. Okay, he also gives John Hick a two quoque kind of objection. That's just a um, same to you, back at you kind of objection. And he points out that, hey, John Hick, if you hadn't been born in a 20th century United Kingdom, you wouldn't have been a pluralist. And you wouldn't have had those fancy, fancy schmancy, new age, kind of vaguely Unitarian beliefs. Um, if you'd been born in medieval France, John Hick, you would have been a Catholic. If you'd been born in Pakistan, you would have been a Muslim. So this argument seems to apply to you too, John Hick. It seems to apply to uh, anybody, no matter what their religious beliefs are like. So we've got a kind of self-defeat problem here. Okay, um, so John Hick had a bit of a reply. So here's what John Hick said in reply to um, Alvin Plantinga. So in reply to that place of birth counterexample and the two quoque counterexample, or two quoque self-defeat problem, John Hicks says, okay, that's true. John Hicks speaking in his own case. He says like, yeah, if I had been born in Pakistan, I would have been a Muslim. If I had been born in India, I would have been a Hindu. But how relevant is it? 
One is not usually a religious pluralist as a result of having been raised from childhood to be one. As in most cases, one is raised from childhood to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu, etc. Okay, and this is where their little dialogue ended, unfortunately. So John Hick gave his skeptical argument, Alvin Plantinga gave his counterexamples, and then John Hick gave this reply, and then that was sort of the end of the conversation. Um, so I think what John Hick's pointing out is the problem that he means to bring to our attention isn't that your religious beliefs easily could have been different. It's rather the way you acquired your religious beliefs. And it wasn't a good way. You didn't use a good method of forming your religious beliefs. Um, the method that you used could have easily produced false beliefs. And I guess we would say the same thing to the person who buys lottery tickets and just guesses at the winning numbers. Sure, they might be right, but it's like astronomically improbable. Um, they're using a method, just guessing, that is likely to produce false beliefs. Loser tickets, not winning tickets. Okay, and so what he's pointing out in his little response to planning it is the problem with religious believers is that they were raised from childhood to be religious believers. They got their religious beliefs from early childhood education, from early teaching and socialization. So basically, they were just brainwashed, something like that. They were just raised to be religious. But John Hick is making a little um, exemption for himself. He's saying he's exempt from this argument because his religious pluralist beliefs were not formed in that bad way. He formed his religious beliefs uh, about pluralism as a result of rational reflection. So he's good, <laughs> but the rest of us, uh, sheep, uh, religious believers, <laughs> we just believe whatever we're told, and we're not reflective about it. Okay, so yeah, as I said, that's where they left this argument. So I think we can improve the argument a little bit to, be, um, to capture what John Hick has in mind. And I think it's something like this. He's saying, look, the problem with you religious believers is your religious beliefs were instilled into you um, from childhood through early teaching and socialization, as uh, Descartes said, by custom and example. Um, yeah. And I think that's what um, John Stuart Mill was getting at when he talks about mere accident of birth. Like it's, it's determined by where you were born, but of course you weren't born a Catholic. You were raised to be a Catholic by your parents. People who are Hindus in India often weren't born Hindu. They were raised um, through early teaching and socialization to be Hindu. So that's the problem. And so if we try to use this argument on him and say, look, John Hick, your religious beliefs were instilled in you from childhood, he will deny that premise. He'll say no. John Hick will say my religious beliefs were the result of rational reflection. I wasn't brainwashed. Okay, but the way we're supposed to get the skeptical argument is we start with this uh, premise saying that you used a bad method. You were basically brainwashed to hold the religious beliefs that you hold. Um, so therefore, what's supposed to follow from that is your religious beliefs are not necessarily false, but if they're true, it would be a tremendous accident that they were true. The way that the lottery ticket person may have a winning ticket, but it would just be by accident. It would be a huge stroke of luck. Okay, so that's where we're supposed to get after this first premise. Um, we're supposed to prove that religious beliefs are at best true by accident. And so that's why they're not really knowledge. We want something more out of knowledge. When it comes to knowledge, it couldn't be that you know something just by chance or just by luck. You've got to have the right sort of connection to the truth. Um, yeah, couldn't be an accident that you're right. 
Okay, so that's why you don't really know that your religious beliefs are true. Okay, so this is a bad method argument. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess this is version three of the argument. And I think I'm just doing five versions. So, <laughs> uh, what if I'd said like 15 versions? <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, okay, just five versions. And uh, okay, we'll go a little faster. Okay, so um, what can we say by reply? One is that you might have guessed already what I was going to say about premise one. If John Hick gets a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm going to take it too because um, I didn't form my beliefs, just my religious beliefs just as a result of having been brainwashed. I actually thought about him, and as I told you, I switched from Lutheranism to Catholicism. So that means I definitely get to deny premise one. I don't know about all of you, um, but I think actually... If you are in this room thinking about this argument right now, you get a free pass on premise one. You get to deny premise one, because you're thinking about it. So I just gave, that's, you didn't know this was going to happen, <laughs> but just by coming here, you get an exemption to this kind of argument, because now you've thought about your religious beliefs. And if you continue to hold them as a result of rational reflection, then it's not true that you hold them just because they were instilled into you from childhood. Okay, so that's one thing you can say. Um, this will, unfortunately, kind of abandon those religious believers who were just sort of raised to be Catholic, the kind of unreflective religious believers, will be kind of leaving them behind, which you might think is kind of sad. Is that sad? What, is it like the range, army rangers who say, like, leave no man behind? Okay, so maybe well, let's say a little more about this argument so that we don't leave anyone behind. Um, I think this inference doesn't work. The fact that certain beliefs were instilled into you from childhood does not show that they're at best true by accident. And I think we can use planning as place of birth counter example again. Why do I believe I was born in Long Beach? Because my parents told me from a very young age, that's where you were born. I haven't, I've never actually checked it. Um, I know, I think my mom has my birth certificate like in a filing cabinet at our house at my age. <laughs> um, she's a good mom. So I've never actually looked. I don't think I've, never really examined my birth certificate. Um, so yeah, I've just taken their word for it. I believe it because they told me since childhood that that's where I was born. Does it follow that that belief is at best true by accident? Not if my parents are honest, right? And not if they're telling me that I was born in Long Beach because I was born in Long Beach. Um, as long as they're actually tracking the truth and relaying the truth to me, then it's no accident that my belief is true. Okay, so I don't think two follows from one. Um, and I think I also say, yeah, so this sort of inference is overlooking the virtues of testimony. Testimony can connect us to truth, even testimony with many links in the chain. Um, when it comes to my own birth, I just got one link in the chain. My parents were there when I was born, so they know. Um, when it comes to religious beliefs, like uh, whether Jesus rose from the dead, we got like many more links in the chain. But if all the links are sound, then knowledge can be transmitted along a very long chain of testimony. And it will be no accident that they're right. Okay, and then the last one, I thought we could also say that three doesn't follow from two. Because it is possible to know things by accident. Um, it is true that um, sometimes luck precludes knowledge. Um, so again, if you were just guessing about what the winning lottery numbers are, and you were right, you didn't really know what they were. But other times you can be lucky to know things. So like a detective might stumble upon the murder weapon and thereby know who committed the crime. 
um, and be lucky to know that. Like, you might have easily missed that murder weapon. Um, here's another case. This one's kind of weird, but... Okay, imagine that you are, like, witnessing a car accident. I guess, yeah, I kind of saw, saw something like this happen, like, downtown today. Okay, somebody, somebody on, like, a little hoverboard almost got hit. Um, it was really sad. But he's fine. Everybody's fine. Okay, but now imagine with me um, that we see a car accident. The car is coming right towards me, um, but it just narrowly misses me, and now it's in a ditch. And everybody's fine. Nobody died. Um, but the car is in the ditch. So there are many accidents in the, in the neighborhood here. Like it's an accident that the car crashed. Um, it might be like lucky that the person's alive. It's an accident that the car's in the ditch. It's an accident, you might think that, that I'm alive, that it just narrowly missed me. I'm alive um, by luck. I easily might have died. Um, but nevertheless, I can know all of those things. I can know that the car lost control. I can know that the car crashed in the ditch. I can know that I'm alive. So evidently, um, knowledge is compatible with certain kinds of luck, at least, a high degree of luck. And maybe this kind of luck, this kind of accident. Um, yeah, it could be that my religious beliefs are best true by accident, but if it's the kind of accident that's compatible with knowledge, then um, I may nevertheless know that they're true. And anyway, these sorts of cases show that just from the fact that a belief is uh, true by accident doesn't show that you don't know that it's true. Okay, so let's um, revisit Philip Kitcher's version of the argument for version four of the argument. So remember, he's the one who said, we're sort of imagining like Christians over here and Aboriginal Australians over here and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. Um, and we're imagining that they all have the same kind of evidence. Um, and there's a kind of symmetry between them. So I guess what Philip Kitcher's thinking is, if you ask any one of these religious believers, why do you hold the beliefs that you do? I guess he's imagining they'll give you the same kinds of answers. Maybe they'll say, because my parents told me. Maybe they'll say it's like a cultural, cultural tradition for me. Maybe they'll say I've had religious experiences that like, convinced me it was true. But they'll give you the same kind of evidence. Or maybe they'll point to their sacred scriptures and say, that's why I believe it. But his thought is like, they all have tradition, they all have scriptures, they all have experiences. Um, so why trust one group rather than the others? Okay, so that was Philip Kitcher's argument. Um, so I think the argument goes something like this, and I think this might be a way to improve um, version three of the argument as we go to version four. So we start again by saying, look, your religious beliefs were instilled into you from childhood, that's just a fact, it was early teaching and socialization that got you to believe this way, and that's why if you'd been born and raised elsewhere, else when, you easily might have had different religious beliefs. And in fact, they would have been false according to you. If you'd been born among the Aboriginal Australians, you would have had doctrines about dream time rather than doctrines about the resurrection. And from your current perspective, those beliefs you would have had would have been false. Okay, so that's what's supposed to worry us. It's not just that they're different, it's that from my current standpoint, I easily could have been wrong. Okay, and then here's what I think um, Philip Kitcher might be picking up on. It's unclear whether you're in a better epistemic position than your counterfactual selves who disagree with you. So epistemic just means of or relating to knowledge. It's just a fancy way of saying of or relating to knowledge. <laughs> so with respect to knowledge, it's unclear whether you're in a better position than all the ways you easily might have been. Like why think that you have better evidence than you easily might have had? Why think that the scriptures you're actually trusting are better than the scriptures you would have trusted? Why think that the religious experiences you actually had are uh, better indicators of the truth than the religious experiences you would have had? 
Okay, so that's the idea here, and um, in the interest of time, I'll. S Whoa, that was like a joke. Okay, that's, that's a symmetry argument. And I think now we're at a stage in, I don't know, these Marvel movies where we're in like a multiverse thing, so we're, these are like counterfactual Spider Man, right? That's the actual Spider-Man, in case you were wondering. <laughs> These are the counterfactual ones. Okay, but yeah, that's like a riff on that Spider-Man meme. Um, that's Philip Kitcher's argument in a meme, in meme form. Yeah, so why trust one of these rather than the others? They all have identical claims, equally good claims to be Spider-Man. Each one of them has an equally good claim to be the Spider-Man. So why pick one over the others? Okay, that's what Philip Kitcher says, but with respect to religious belief. Okay, um, and I said in the interest of time, I'll skip what I think is the support for premise three. Um, I'll just remind you of the thermometers. Remember, like, we stick the two thermometers in the one body of water and they give us different answers? It would be irrational or arbitrary to just pick one of them and say, oh, I'm right-handed, so I'll believe this one. <laughs> like, this is the one I picked first, and I love things that come first, so I'll believe this thermometer. Yeah, those, those would be arbitrary or question-begging ways to break the symmetry. Um, so that's Philip Kitcher's thought. If you're in a situation like this, uh, you better have a really good reason to break the symmetry. Otherwise, you need, to, um, you need to believe none of them. You need to give up your religious beliefs. Okay, um, I'll just remind you, remember, by coming to this talk, you get to deny premise one. So that's great. But what about people who didn't come to this talk? Um, I think that we can at least say this, uh, these sorts of considerations that have to do with um, disagreement, whether when we find people we actually disagree with or just when we think about how we might have disagreed with ourselves in other kinds of counterfactual situations, these sorts of considerations should produce skepticism only when you know about them. I think that's how they work. You have to come to know about them for them to produce skepticism in you. So if you don't know about them, if you're not aware of uh, these considerations, if you're just kind of happily uh, following along um, in the pew, you know, and not really, you're not a reflective religious believer, and you're not aware of these concerns, then the conclusion doesn't follow from you. It's only when you're actually presented with the, the defeater that it um, undermines your knowledge. Okay, so at least people who are non-culpably unaware of the premises are in the clear. Um, so we're not going to leave them behind. And then also, I just wanted to real quick like, give you a more direct uh, response to this argument. I think um, this premise here that says it's unclear whether you're in a better epistemic position than your counterfactual selves who disagree with you, this is going to be true only if you think it's unclear that your religious beliefs are true. Right? Only if you're kind of unsure about your religious beliefs. Because otherwise, you'd say, like, Catholicism is true. I easily might have been otherwise, like there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? I, like, I might have had bad evidence. I might have been raised with really bad evidence. Yeah. Like for some reason in these arguments, we're never told you easily might have been raised a Scientologist or something like that. Like we don't get pretty, are there any Scientologists in here? <laughs> Is this on? Um, you know what I mean? Like they don't use uh, religious beliefs that are sort of far out there where you think, well, that's clearly false. They don't use religious beliefs like that. Because then you wouldn't, you wouldn't endorse this premise. With respect to Scientology, I don't think it's unclear who's in a better epistemic position. I think those poor Scientologists have been 
is it been, is it been like sort of duped, right? I think they've been duped. And I think I'm in a better epistemic position than they are. This is going to be like a podcast. This is going to be broadcast. If you don't hear from me again, <laughs> we're going to know why. Um, maybe a sympathetic editor of this podcast. Just <laughs> cut out that last bit. Just kidding. Leave it in. Um, okay, so yeah. And if that were true, if you really think it's unclear that your religious beliefs are true, why do you even hold them? Why do you even hold them? Have the courage of your convictions and reject premise three and say, actually, it is clear to me that I'm in a better epistemic position. I have this chain of testimony stretching back to eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Um, the Bible's reliable. Thank, thank God. Um, yeah, easily might have had false beliefs and that would have been a, a real bummer. Okay, so there's another response we can give to the symmetry argument. How about just, just like five more minutes? Is that cool? Because that would be 40, that would be more than 45 minutes because I started five minutes late. But I wanted to show you the best version of the argument, the one that I read in that classroom many years ago that played a large role in my becoming a philosopher. If I hadn't picked up that book and taken that class, I might have been in a lab right now, literally right now. They work odd hours in labs. Yeah, so yeah, my whole, my whole life would have been different if I had not discovered philosophy. Okay, um, here's, the, here's the version of the argument that, uh, that I encountered as an undergraduate in that lecture hall in that cognitive science class from Paul Churchland, who was a philosopher of brain at um, UC San Diego for many years. That's like a joke. It's supposed to be philosopher of mind, but he was an eliminative materialist and thought that <laughs> things like beliefs don't really exist. There's just brain state, 257. Um, so as a joke, we say they were philosophers of brain. Um, here's what he said about, he, here was his little foray into philosophy of religion, though. He says, the almost universal opinion that one's own religious convictions are the reasoned outcome of a dispassionate evaluation of all the major alternatives is almost, almost, <laughs> almost demonstrably false for humanity in general. I think that's weird to use a word like that and then use a strong word like that. I think you should just, I think you should, I think you should pick. <laughs> it's one or the other, boss. Um, so almost demonstrably false, so why is that? If that really were the genesis of most people's convictions, then one would expect the major faiths to be distributed more or less randomly or evenly over the globe. But in fact, they show a very strong tendency to cluster. Which illustrates what we all suspected anyway, that social forces are the primary determinants of religious belief for people in general. Okay, so this might remind you of the other versions of the argument that we looked at, but I think this one's the best statement of it that I've encountered so far. Because what he's saying is, um, look, if you just think about the distribution of religious belief across the globe, you see that the cluster, so people are not forming um, religious beliefs as a result of rational reflection. So you can't use that out. You can't try to use that exemption and say, like, I'm a rationally reflective religious believer. You can't do that, according to Paul Churchman. Rather, what we learn by looking at the distribution of religions across the globe is social forces are the primary determinants of religious belief. That's really why you hold your religious beliefs. It is the bad method. So don't try to use the John Hick exemption for yourself. You are um, influenced by social forces, by early teaching and socialization. Otherwise, why would we see this sort of uh, clustering? There he is looking at that map. 
from the 1980s. Okay, so I think the argument goes something like this, and I think uh, it starts the same way. Like he's trying, he says, like, look, you, your religious beliefs were instilled in you from childhood. Um, look at the map. You were born here. You ended up a Christian. No surprise. It's the result of early teaching and socialization. And then I put and slash so. Like I don't know if this is supposed to follow from premise one or if it's just like it's like a one-two punch kind of thing. <laughs> like uh, you were. Um, you were raised to hold the religious beliefs that you hold. There's one consideration. And maybe a way to convince you of that is think about how things would have been had you been raised somewhere else. Okay, and then what he thinks that proves is you don't hold your religious beliefs because they're true. You hold them, and he says primarily, because of factors irrelevant to their truth. Just who your parents were, where you were raised, where you were born geographically. You hold them as a result of like a real estate decision. as. I uh, found out in the case of my own Lutheran beliefs. Um, yeah, and the real estate decision was not relevant to the truth of the religious beliefs. My grandparents didn't buy that house because Lutheranism is true. <laughs> um, they bought it because they liked, they liked it. It had nothing to do with the truth of their religious beliefs. Okay. Um, and then it's on that basis that we're supposed to conclude that our religious beliefs aren't knowledge. Um, right, I feel like there was something else I wanted to say about this. Oh yeah, I wanted to say this. So I like this version of the argument because um, I think that this picks up on or highlights an important feature about the way we try to undermine each other's beliefs. When I try to, I can, if I find out that I disagree with you and I want to convince you that you're wrong, I can do two things. I can either directly challenge your belief and try to convince you that it's false or I can challenge the grounds or the basis for your belief. I can try to undermine your belief. I can try to convince you that the reasons that you have are not good reasons. So I can like directly rebut your belief. I can challenge it directly. Or I can challenge the grounds or the basis. And when we and I think that this argument we've been considering for the last 45 minutes is a kind of undermining argument. They're not trying to convince us directly that our religious beliefs are false. They're trying to undermine our religious beliefs and saying, the reasons you hold this religious belief are not good. It's this early teaching socialization. So it's an undermining kind of defeater. And when we give undermining defeaters to each other, they, um, they have this sort of structure. And you might even use this phrase. Well, you just believe that because dot, dot, dot. You just believe that because you went to American University. Or you, I heard that they have a wide variety of religious views at American University. Okay, you just believe that because you went to um, to American University. Or you just believe that because you read The Daily Worker every day as, a, as an undergraduate. Um, or you just believe that because, uh, I don't know, what are some other ones? What are some other things that might influence your belief that we think are bad? I guess if you were the victim of like a love potion, somebody might bring that to your attention, like you're about to propose marriage as a result of this love, but there's no such thing as a love potion. But if there were, and you saw that your friend was being influenced by the love potion and about to propose marriage, you might say, look, you, believe, you just believe that she's worthy of marriage because you're, on a, you're under the influence of this love potion. Yeah, so we use that same structure. You just believe that because, and then we give reasons or we give grounds that are unrelated to the truth. Like because of this love potion, you would have thought that she was um, worthy of your affection, whether or not she really was. Um, all right. So that's kind of what uh, Paul Churchill is saying here. He's giving us um, an undermining defeater 
by saying that our religious beliefs are, we don't hold them because they're true. Okay, and just that way, um, I think that that indicates to us what knowledge really is. The fact that the way we defeat knowledge is either by attacking truth um, or perhaps attacking whether, we could really challenge whether or not somebody believes that. We could do that. Like, you don't really believe that. You're arguing in bad faith or something like that. That's another way to challenge somebody. You can challenge truth. You can challenge belief. Or you can challenge um, the connection between their belief and the truth. And so I think this indicates what knowledge really is, and it's just um, believing something because it's true. I think that's, that's what knowledge is. And quick shout out to former student in the room, Will Perrin, former Pepperdine student, now co-author. Um, we've written a couple papers defending that view of knowledge. Knowledge is just believing something because it's true. And I think what Paul, Paul Churchland is telling us here is you don't hold your religious beliefs because they're true. Okay, so let me give a response and then I'll stop talking. Um, so here again, I think if this is unsupported, you can deny that. If you want, you can challenge his argument from geography and say like, no, I really wasn't, my religious beliefs weren't determined by geography, I actually thought about them. Um, but I think that maybe two is enough to convince you that you don't hold your religious beliefs because they're true. After all, you easily might have held different religious beliefs. So it wasn't the truth that was producing these beliefs in you, um, it was something else. Okay, but I think this is the best kind of objection to the argument. So even if one and two were true, three doesn't follow. And that's because it is possible to hold a belief for two reasons. One of them might be good and one of them might be bad. And all that Paul Churchland has really shown here, even if we grant his premises, is that you hold your religious beliefs at least in part for one bad reason. You were influenced by social forces. That's what he's proven. It doesn't follow that you hold your religious beliefs primarily because of factors irrelevant to their truth. It would follow that you do hold them at least in part because of factors irrelevant to the truth. But he didn't do anything to show the primarily bit, and you really need the primarily bit. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example. It could be that you're serving on a jury, um, you don't have any, you haven't heard the evidence yet. You walk into the courtroom and um, you don't know whether the defendant is innocent or guilty, but you see as you walk into the courtroom that he has a face tattoo and you start thinking he probably did it. Is that bad to say? Is that biased against face tattoo people? All right, pick whatever you think might be. <laughs> might okay, and the face tattoo, I didn't finish. The face tattoo says, I did it. <laughs> it says, I'm guilty. Now, now we're okay. Um, all right, so uh, you see that. Um, you see a face tattoo, it says I'm guilty. Um, yeah, uh, or maybe you might even be motivated by a kind of sexism. You think like big burly guys like that are more likely to be guilty. I didn't mention he was burly, but in my mind, <laughs> he was burly. Um, or maybe you've got some racial animus influencing you. The point is just you might have a lot of bad influences on your belief. Um, influences that aren't really connected to the truth. You're just biased against face tattoo people. Um, you're biased against men. You're biased against people of whatever race this person is. You might have bad influences on your belief. But suppose you hear the evidence and the evidence is absolutely damning. It's a clear case, op like open and shut, whatever they say. Um, this person's clearly guilty. So then at the end of the day, at the end of the trial, you are firmly convinced this person's guilty. It is true that your belief is influenced 
by um, biases that aren't really connected to the truth, racial animus or sexism or anti-face tattoo bias. But as long as your belief is also influenced by the evidence, then you can know that that belief is true, right? You can know that he's guilty, even if there is, you're being influenced by a factor irrelevant to the truth. Okay, so I just had a couple of pictures to illustrate that. Um, I'm just gonna skip ahead. Here we've got somebody saying, um, today I'm gonna believe that Christianity is true, and then suppose that he does, he succeeds in believing that Christianity is true. What we would like is for that belief to be based on arguments and evidence. We want it to be connected to the truth in the right sort of way. What we would like is to hold that belief because it's true. What Paul Churchland is pointing out is, you know, there were other influences on your belief, early teaching and socialization. And what Paul Churchland is claiming is that was, uh, this is the primary influence on your belief. He doesn't say the only influence, so maybe this should, yeah, okay, so that's fine. So this X isn't like totally solid. It's just like, you weren't really influenced by arguments and evidence. It was early teaching and socialization. That's what Paul Churchland's saying. So um, that's why he thinks you don't really know that Christianity is true because your primary influence was this one. So here's an analogy. It's like if somebody said, oh, today, you know, it's 2023, uh, I'm a Gen Z person. I'm going to believe in an ethic of authenticity. And then the person does succeed. Oh, shoot. <laughs> okay, I changed the slides. Um, that's what it was. <laughs> I, had, I, had made, I had a little joke about Gen Z people, but I guess I backed out. I, I, lost, <laughs> I lost the courage to do it. Um, here's one that's a little more uh, mundane, less controversial. Today I'm going to believe my local sports team is the best, and then the person does succeed in believing that. And what they'd like to believe is that they hold this uh, view about their local sports team because their, sports, their local sports team really is the best. But I think what we all realize about um, sports fandom is, like, if you had lived in a different city or been raised in a different family, you would have had different kinds of affiliations and fandoms. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so then we find out that really it was just early teaching and socialization or just broadly cultural forces. Yeah, I, I kind of became a Longhorns fan because when I went there, they had just won the Rose Bowl and they were really riding high and it was pretty awesome. Yeah, hook em horns and so on. Um, I got on the bandwagon, okay? I'll be honest. Um, and then I became kind of a Packers fan because my first job was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and they had just won the Super Bowl, and that was the season. They almost had a perfect record. So yeah, okay, I got on that bandwagon too. If I had gone to a different grad school, if my first job had been somewhere else, I wouldn't have been fans of those teams. Okay, so in that sort of case, we realize, you yeah, know, really, there's, there's nothing that's really like intrinsically virtuous about my sports team. It's really just cultural forces that are convincing me to believe this. Okay, so that's the analogy. But um, last thing I'll say, and then I promise it's over, uh, maybe it's more like this. We believe that Christianity is true for two reasons. It's not just cultural forces. I think we could admit that cultural forces have influenced our beliefs. I know that my own um, Catholicism was influenced by who I met and what books I happened to read. Um, but what I would like to hope is that some of the testimony I got from those friends of mine was connected to the truth. Um, and, it, and that way it might be like, you know, people who came to believe in heliocentrism or germ theory or uh, the Roman Empire on the basis of testimony um, because of the connection to the truth. So even if it was early teaching and socialization, that still might have the right kind of connection to the truth to be knowledge. But also just the fact that I was influenced by cultural forces doesn't mean that arguments and evidence didn't play a role. In fact, in my case, it was my friend group 
that gave me arguments and evidence. Um, and that put me in a position to know the truth about these religious questions. Okay, and if that's true, then, hey, this could be knowledge. All right, so that's what I would say in response to Paul Churchill. Quick summary, yes, our beliefs about religion and literally everything else, uh, those beliefs were influenced by early teaching and socialization. But as we've seen, this applies to everyone, including the skeptic. Um, and as I've told you, early teaching and socialization is just a kind of testimony um, which may be connected to the truth, and testimony can produce knowledge. Okay, but even if it was bad testimony, so long as I'm also influenced by arguments and evidence, then I can still know that my religious beliefs are true. All right, so there's your answer um, to this sort of objection. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.